Hello again, it's the Weekly Curio Podcast. I'm the Whip Theater's Tom Britton. And I'm College of Curiosity's Jeff Wagg. We're going to start this week like we do every week with the first half of our puzzle. A man from Australia was thrilled to have finally crossed the equator by ship. When he was thrown overboard in the typical ritual, he was surprised to find himself swimming with penguins. Where was he? We'll start this week with a follow-up to the banana apocalypse. Binoculars. The binoculars. <laughs> we talked before. Now I'm acting like we're reporters. We've reported before that the banana has. <laughs> it, we have a monoculture of banana. We had yep. this before with the Big Mike, which is short yeah. for some Mike and And it's a super monoculture because they're every banana is exactly the same genome as every other banana. Yeah, we're using the Cavendish now, and we had this. Now it's hopped to Mozambique. Yeah. So before this blight was contained in other areas, now it's hopped to Africa where a good supply of bananas are grown because of their proximity for shipping north to the Middle East. And this is a problem because now, despite our best efforts, this fungus has hopped. And so what do we do if we cut out the banana, the number one fruit in America? And nearly it, the As world. of like six years ago, it passed the apple. Yep. And one of the most important fruits in the world... And we might lose it because of our... We we had this exact problem with Big Mike. We had this exact yep. problem with the potato famine. We had this exact problem again and again and again. Are we ever going to learn not to do this? We should, we should really eat more things. I mean, we... Of all the edible things on the planet, maybe 1% of them or even half a percent of them are in the American supermarket. Especially the produce department. There, how many edible fruits are there in the world? Uh, many more than we we're available. Well, go count the, the varieties of tomatoes available. Oh, that's a good you. point. You know, or there's cucumbers. hundreds of tomatoes, dozens of cucumbers, uh, dozens of potatoes even. One banana. And that's not exactly true. You're starting to see some of these exotic wild bananas that have full of seeds. Well, so, we've also ruined certain, like, red delicious apples used to have flavor. Yeah, I remember biting in and they were kind of sweet, and now they're kind of, like, they're sawdust. They're pretty. That's it. Yeah, they're very that's pretty. It. They're and pretty. they last a long time. Yeah, we've done this before with animals. Uh, pork used to be the other white meat, and so yeah. the pigs were being bred to be paler in color right. in the meat. Now you'll see more pink pork in the supermarket. So some yeah. of that is being designed by manufacturing and marketing. Your slogan then drives your animal. Yeah, actually, part of that color. is that they've uh, declared the swine population, the edible pig population, to be trichinosis free. Yep. Which means you don't have to. You you can have a rare pork. Yeah, by the way, Drop cook now. your pork to 135 degrees if you live in the U.S. Yeah. and in much of the European Union. Trichinosis is not a factor anymore. Anymore. It used to be in the 70s. It was like, you burn the hell out of that thing. And you know. And people are still scared, especially in poorer communities. And so you're eating cheaper cuts of pork and cooking them badly. Yeah. Get yourself a probe thermometer for 30 bucks, whack it in the pork, and when it beeps at 135 or even 130, pull it out of the oven, let it come mm -hmm. up to temperature, and you'll be absolutely fine. Here's the good news. Um, it's a $2 billion industry in the U.S. alone. So Chiquita and Dole, being the primary movers in this part of the world, are and, and Chiquita being the victim of this one in Mozambique, that was their farms mm -hmm. that got affected, they are very motivated to solve this problem. And they've solved it with the lovely name of um, uh, GCTCV219. Ask for <laughs> it by name at your local grocer. <laughs> it doesn't have a cool name yet. Highly resistant to this. It's called the Panama disease. Um it's being tested in the Philippines and Australia, and it is not a GMO banana. 
Which is yeah. important if you want to sell to the European Union. Yeah, that means it's not made with gene splicing. Right, it's, but it is made tactical. with grafting and sort of the Norman yeah, Borlaug version. The, we've been modifying plant genomes for thousands of years, and this is the more traditional method. Right, yeah. and that means that it can also go unlabeled. That's yep. a huge factor in California. Yeah, Where they have GMO labeling. Uh, and then you got to go to variety. we got to get off the monoculture. We've got to start, as consumers, demanding different types of bananas. That's impossible, isn't it? it? It seems like we should, they shouldn't wait. It's like, it, you know, I, the, so these companies have a lot of money invested in their bananas, of course, and they're not sitting around. They know they're in trouble. So they're doing all kinds of research to come up with other bananas, but they're not bringing them out yet. They're, it's like they're waiting for the Cavendish to collapse. And hey, maybe that's the problem. Maybe we should have five different kinds of bananas. And can't you advertise that? Aren't we suckers? Didn't we buy the white meat thing? Didn't we Rich, buy yeah. McDonald's french fries? We buy Bud Light. These aren't <laughs> the best products. They're not even the best beer in my neighborhood. No, that's true. But what's the number one beer? The number one beverage on earth is Coke. Number two is Diet Coke. Yep. And a distant third is anyone else. And they fail taste tests compared against any other major cola brands. And the, the, yeah, there's local cola brands. There's hyper-local cola mm -hmm. brands now. Aren't we, especially in the States, particularly susceptible to just BS marketing slogans? It seems so. If Miley Cyrus tweets about her four <laughs> favorite types of bananas, they sell those four types of bananas. And it, it, it sort of makes me frustrated when I'm saying, well, why aren't you doing that then? And part of it is when you have a monoculture, it's cheaper and more efficient. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This new banana with GCT319 is going to be more, um, uh, it's less, uh, what do you call it, yield. Right, so, so it costs them harvest. more to make it. That's why they're not yep. using yeah, it. Yeah, of course. There's something like that. It's going to be a little less sweet, a little smaller. There's going to be some deficiency. Otherwise, they would be using it. And that explains, you know, these are businesses. They're trying to make money. So if they can get, you know. And in the short term, apparently. They're trying to make money this yeah, quarter. Right. They're not thinking about next oh. quarter. And that's what makes me yeah, so crazy with corporations. That's if if they're people, problem. they're psychopathic, simple people. Yep. They're just looking at the next quarter results or the next uh, report and, you know, to watch the share price go up. And nobody's thinking 10 years down the road with any real seriousness. And in this case, you have to. We can't come up with another banana variety immediately. And one that is not GMO, that is GMO free, that is, that is not the modern technique. Right. We could probably use the modern technique, but currently we're fighting a marketing war on that front as well. Yep. And so that's a problem. You know, you have to label bananas gluten-free. That's how dumb we are about food. <laughs> the gluten-free banana. Eventually, I think people are going to lay off of this, and then we'll be able to go into a lab and look at the banana genome and say, aha, it's this chain of genes right here. That's what makes it susceptible to this fungus. We'll just replace those with the genes from, say, hey, Big Mike, or one of the other bananas. Oh, probably not Big Mike, because it had that other problem. And then... Um, there was, there was you debate know the switching difference. back to Big Mike, though. Well, right. Because that particular fungus, because Big Mike isn't around to feed on, has died down. Yep. So you just keep changing the station yeah, we'll back, and back and yeah, forth. Yeah, we'll just keep swapping back and forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And go, but Big Mike was a known quantity, known yields, known right. data point, and GC8375302 <laughs> is not as known a quantity as Big Mike and Cavendish in the modern world. Yeah. So they actually, uh, about two years ago, I heard of that. Let's just go back to Big Mike bananas so if you haven't had a, a banana lately get thee to the grocery <laughs> yeah. store now you may not so that you can taste the cavendish because you're about to taste i don't know what they're gonna call it yeah it'll have another name than a whole bunch of letters i'm sure you gotta love an article that has the pull quote this is right out of some hollywood thriller <laughs> scientists reconstruct speech through soundproof glass 
by watching a bag of potato chips. This is courtesy <laughs> of TheVerge.com. Yeah. We're talking in a room, soundproof glass between me and these researchers. Mm-hmm. Or one of us is talking, at least. It's speech on how simple it was. A, B, C, on how complicated they yeah. could get. There's a bag of potato chips, though it doesn't have to be potato chips. This is not a potato chip-specific technology. <laughs> no, it's the bag-specific. Uh, watching it, you can then recreate visually into audio and get enough speech for them to start publishing a paper. Yeah, they. so what they're doing is... Um, so it's a Mylar bag of potato chips, plastic bag, as we would call it. You know, those really noisy kind of bags. And your sound vibrations that come as you speak vibrate this bag a little tiny bit. And with lasers, they can detect how the bag is vibrating, and it gives them a wave. And that wave is the sound wave of what you're saying. And if Tom Cruise had done that in Mission Impossible, oh, yeah. I'd have been like, BS! Yeah, bold. That's nonsense, well, Hollywood. A, now they've got recordings, and uh, the recordings, you know, it, it does not sound like this recording. You, you know, you could not make a podcast using right. this. But if you were trying to figure out what someone was saying, you'd get, you know, 90% of the words. So spying on people is useful. Sure. For using it uh, to detect sounds on planets or asteroids, uh, which would then also go maybe to looking for certain kinds of minerals, certain kinds of deposits. So if I'm looking on the moons of Jupiter to see if there's silicon or whatever, I might know what those sounds were like on the surface and I could go backwards. We do that with the light spectrum now. It is conceivable that we could do it with like the the way a rock rings would tell us its components. Asteroids. So that's huge to know know even if you're accurate in your guess because we do that with if this gas is being released, then that must be in there. If that's part of the spectrometer, sound, Mm -hmm. light, everything else to figure out what these things are composed of. So now we can add sound vibrations to the mix. Yeah, there's even things you could tell, like temperature. For example, like going through a pipe, you've probably noticed this in the shower, hot water sounds different than cold water. I mean, it really shouldn't. And that's probably important for rocketry? It could be, sure. Like, you know, yeah, you have thermal thermometers, but maybe you have this backup sensor that's just listening. And then whenever yeah, it detects something spots, unusual. Yeah, so that, to you know. speak. Or, or, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And infrared is probably a better way to do it, but... You know, it doesn't matter. Once we create a new form of technology, someone will think of some weird way to use it. Well, you talked about pottery, the ancient Greek pottery. Yeah, so this is an old article from way back uh, that the ancient potters in Roman Greece, some of them used wheels to make pottery like we do today. And what that means is they would have a thing of clay spinning around and they would take a stick and put the stick on it and it would make a groove. What does that sound like? That sounds like a record. Yeah. And so the theory is, and that this has never been done, but the theory is that if they were talking or if there were other sounds in the room, those would have been recorded by the stick being carved into the clay. And that even today we could go back and somehow measure the difference and, you know, subtract the, the carrier wave that would be just the stick, find the imperfections strip them out, and that would be the sound that was in the room when the clay was being made. And that's, if Nicolas Cage were in that movie, I'd yell <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's... To hear a dead language, yeah. though, or to even oh, know yeah. part, it could be a Rosetta Stone to how Latin is pronounced. Did they really say Cicero or Caesar, or did they say Cicero and Caesar, like we say? I mean, Right, you know. yeah, it, that's absolutely insane to think that we could revive <laughs> portions of dead languages. Or even the intonation. birds. I mean, you know, what birds were flying by is like, oh, well, that's clearly a northern mockingbird. They didn't live in Rome back then. So we must have something wrong. And I always read that Marconi, he was a religious person, Marconi, mm-hmm. and he believed that sound energy never dissipated fully, mm-hmm. that it was still out there. It's got to hit something. invent 
a sensitive enough radio, he could pick it up and thus hear Jesus, I'm going to say perform, well, sure. the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. And that was an ultimate goal for him, theoretically. I don't know how serious he was about that, but he thought maybe one day I could do this in my lifetime. And now we've got something like that in pottery, where I'm now going to, in po possibly at least, hear an ancient person speaking yeah, like, you know, their dialect. Five, their dialect, I didn't think about that. Oh, sure. Their neighborhood's version of Latin, as opposed to the way the aristocracy right. spoke Latin. I could hear a poor person, a tradesperson's, version of Latin, yeah, which I mean, is even more exciting. They'd be talking about how bad lunch was or how mean the boss is. I mean, I really don't think the conversation that went around in the shop has changed in quality much. No, no, then, no. Know, those are ancient, I mean, those were things. ancient professions when they were throwing the wheel. Right. So, you know, what the writings we do have from Greece and Roman are all official documents and learned people describing things or people with political agendas. We really don't have much of what the common people would talk about other than, say, graffiti written on the walls of the Colosseum, stuff like that. That's a cool idea to get the common man's yeah. something out there into the historical record. If you go it. to TheVerge.com, they've also got a very cool uh, video we'll try and put in the show notes where you can see how the data gets expressed from sound by laser into visual data, and they have a description of how to turn it back into sound. Now, this leads into something else, which is being spied upon. So... Um, those of you who have ever taken apart a radio or a speaker or a microphone or who've plugged in their headphones into the microphone jack of something have realized that microphones and speakers are the same thing. Yes. They're, they're shaped different because they were optimized for one thing or the other, but basically it's a magnetic coil and a diaphragm and you, the diaphragm picks up vibrations and moves the coil over a magnet and that produces an electric current and that's your sound or recording either way. So what that means is your cell phone has speakers in it. It, more that it's got at least one speaker and probably a few microphones. They're always vibrating. The diaphragm's always vibrating. So is it possible that some evil entity could hack into your phone and listen to listen to what you're saying? Well, yeah. And they had this technology in the fifties and sixties right, where with they regular could phones. ring your home phone, mm -hmm. but it wouldn't ring, and it would just activate. And yep. then if you were in the room talking, they could simply listen in on you. And this was, yeah, I think this was the 50s, certainly by the 60s. It, yeah, the Because I learned it from spy it. movies in the 70s. Right. And then, you know, they would have, there were phones that came out that would disconnect the wires to the diaphragm so that couldn't happen and stuff. But, but yeah, if you think about everything in the room around you that could possibly be recording your voice, there's plenty of them. But then you have to ask, why would anyone care? Well, and don't you get no safety in numbers like the NSA collecting yeah. so much oh, data? Geez. One of my big complaints was that's too much data. I, I, I must be generating a gig or more data a day, just me. Yeah. You know, I, and multiply that by hundreds of millions of people. And the number of times you discuss similar things, yeah. that the number of times I said bomb or jihad or, oh, right. or, you know what I mean? Or something political. We're recording this at Tom's house, by the way. It's, you know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but even in discussing a situation with ISIS and Iraq or whatever, right. you're going to generate the computer's not smart enough to parse context. Right. So it's, you know, if I put that in an email, the sheer volume protects you, but also makes me complain to these organizations of like, <laughs> no, you need better metrics. Yeah. You need better data management. You need to hire Google. to. <laughs> right. But yeah, context is so difficult for computers to do. That, yeah, they, they could listen to me all day. I'm only bothered in the abstract morally in the way Ben Franklin would be bothered yeah. by it. I'm not worried about them coming to my house and going, why are you discussing ISIS? Because well, it's on CNN, moron. Right, exactly. How can we get away from right it? There. You know, if you were really going to talk about stuff like this, like you and I, we'd probably talk about a recipe. 
<laughs> you know, we would have yeah. prearranged that tomato means Logan Square and, you know, right, you know right. whatever. So <laughs> we would be the worst. That's like a code that could, like, an eight year old could crack our terrorist <laughs> codes. <laughs> the societyforscience.org asked, what can you learn from the earwax of a whale? Well, it turns out quite a bit. And you can actually learn stuff from the earwax of a human, although mostly just genetic stuff. For example, Asian people have white earwax, whereas Caucasian people tend to have a yellowish earwax, which is weird. But in whales, you can tell a whole lot more. It turns out that whale earwax is a record of where the whale's been, how old the whale is, what kind of pollutants they've come from, and uh, they produce quite a lot of it. So, um... Well, they're big animals. They produce quite a lot of everything. But if you get a, a stick of whale earwax, and that's what it would look like, imagine a drumstick. Uh, not, a, not, a, not a chicken drumstick, a right. drumstick that you He's didn't drum with. Drumstick. <laughs> that's what the earwax would sort of look like. And if you looked at it closely, you'd see rings. And every two rings is one year of life. So if you had one with 20 rings, you'd know you had a 10-year-old whale. You can also tell what sex it was, male or female. And through chemical analysis, you can say, ah there's oil in here or there's PCBs or some sort of contaminant. And you, from that, you can determine where the whale was living. Now, where would you have gotten the earwax where you don't know? Couldn't you just looked at the bottom half of the whale to determine gender? <laughs> well, yeah, so that's the, the thing. Giant genitalia there wouldn't kill whales. Whales don't actually, um, they don't actually shed earwax. You know, we, we do somewhat and we typically manually remove it, but whales, it just kind of collects in there and it's supposed to be nasty, foul smelling stuff. But a lot of times when you get a whale, you don't get the whole whale. You get a decomposing carcass, Ah, the earwax will still be in there. So, um, there, there's a new study now for cetacean, cetalt, cetacean, someone who studies whales is a cetologist. Sounds good. I don't know. I'll go with that. And that uh, they, they study earwax, and they're going to create a whole library of things that are found in earwax, and you'll be able to determine all kinds of things in a whale. That is the nastiest library ever. Yeah, well, Do not go to the reference section of that library. If you, if you want to see some of the other unsavory things that whales do, you can Google fecal plume and see some pictures of dive, <laughs> divers in unfortunate situations. Oh, oh <laughs> that um, whale has a hell of a sense of humor. Yeah, like I said, the whales are large animals, and they don't really do anything small. And, uh, yeah. But whales whales produce all kinds of weird things. Uh, we, uh, we just saw a play here called the, uh, the Whale Ship Essex, which was a, a live-action play about men whose ship was destroyed by whales, and they had to drift around in whaleboats. And you learn a lot, like, uh, you know, sperm whales. Why are they called sperm whales? Because they have that giant volume of this waxy liquid called sper- spermaceti in their heads. And uh, why is it called spermaceti? It looks like semen. Uh, that's why it was called that, honestly. Um, it's kind of, you know, people use this term all the time. They don't really think, why is it called that? Well, yeah, it looks like semen. It's crazy to me that this is an animal also that we know so little about that we're grasping at, you know, you find a decomposing body and you're trying to find every piece of data you can because as this article points out, a lot of these giants, they hide. Yeah, we don't see them. We can't find them. You know, uh, I was just in Alaska a week ago and we saw humpback whales feeding, lots of them. We probably saw 20. And, um, but even, you know, we're watching them and in some cases we were 100 yards from them and it's all right, they come up every once in a while and that's it. You can't observe much from, uh, from being up in the air you have to go down with them and they're huge animals that can swim faster than anything we have so and they're smart you know. if you're down there with them you're altering their behavior because they're absolutely. curious they animals. know you're there yeah so you go down 
And then whale sharks will do this. They'll come towards you. Yeah, hey, like, what's hey, that floating in the water? They're also there? kind of fearless. Not a lot bothers them. Right. No, they don't have any predators other than us. So you're trying to observe them in their natural habitat. This is the same problem Jane Goodall faced. Yep. But you are creating an artificial habitat by virtue of they're not a dumb animal. Right. They come over. They nudge you. They swim around you. They fecal plume you. Yeah. They, they goof around with you. And now you're playing with a pod. You're playing with a family. When you're supposed to be there as a silent, passive observer, observer, yeah, and so yeah, I can imagine you have to collect like CSI-style evidence at the end of this animal's yeah. life. That's, most that's of crazy. Most of what we know about whales comes from the whaling days when everyone's homes were you know or uh, lit with whale oil, which kind of amazing, you know. We turn on the light, we flip a switch, electricity lights the light bulbs. But at one time, almost everyone's home, the light came from whales. I, I, it's hard to even imagine. That's that's an insane technology to yeah, and, and there are hundreds of thousands of men on the seas, yeah, harvesting these animals Off for four years, and you know they quickly harvested out all the oceans that were close to land. So uh, by the time the whale ship Essex incident happened, they were heading way out to the Galapagos from New Bedford, Massachusetts. Now, if you look at a map, there's no Panama Canal then, so these ships were sailing all the way around South America and then all the way back up again to kill whales, boil them, and then come all the way back. It took like four years, and then they were rich men because this was the petroleum of the day. And thus ends this episode of the Weekly Curio. Until next time, I'm the Whip Theater's Tom Britton. And I'm the College of Curiosity's Jeff Wagg with the second half of the puzzle. A man from Australia was thrilled to have finally crossed the equator by ship. When he was thrown overboard, he was surprised to find himself swimming with penguins. Where was he? Only one place in the world has penguins north of the equator, and that is the Galapagos Islands. <laughs> <laughs>